Good morning. And to those of you who are online, watching online as well, there you are. Uh, great, great to have you. All right, I want to talk a little bit about Easter uh, because we, we have to kind of rearrange everything uh, on Easter. And so I want to talk to you about the Easter times a little bit because we'll have the Saturday night and then Sunday we'll have three services and we'll have full children's programming every service. And we're asking you all, if this is your regular service, to seriously consider coming to being here 15 minutes earlier, if you can. And for those who go to the last service, to go to the 11.15, if possible. Now, if you all do that and nobody goes to the 10 a.m., we could have a little bit of a problem. <laughs> all right, so like if 10 a.m. is like, oh, that would just be so perfect, I think I can say go. Okay, but that will be the favorite time probably of a lot of guests and everything too. So just keep that in mind. Um, but this also means this, that we've got an hour of full children's programming on a, on a big weekend, really important weekend that can impact a lot of lives with really nobody <laughs> volunteering for there basically. And so because normally this is where, you know, the 9 a.m.ers will go and the 10.45 a.m.ers will go there. So we're putting a, a really special push for kids ministry for that hour. And there is a QR code in the back here. And I give you permission not, to not listen to the sermon as you're going through all the options. Or you can wait till later, either way. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so all the positions that are open, it'll tell you, it's a sign of genius, it'll tell you what's open and the various things. And, and there's certain, certain things that you have to be a member for, like teaching and uh, background check and various things like that, but there's a bunch of stuff that doesn't require that. A lot of ways of helping and being a part of our mission on that weekend. So encourage you, go to the 945 if uh, you'd like to be a part of what we're doing that morning, join us in ministering to kids during one of those hours, actually. It doesn't, any hour, because we're kind of rearranging every, everything. So that would be great. Um, and think about this. Some of you, you know, I, I've actually talked to people who are kind of frustrated that they're in their life. They travel a lot. They're going around a whole lot of different places all the time. It's hard for them to, to kind of, like, uh, say, I can volunteer to do this because they know that they're not going to be around here that often. If that's you, if you're going to be around Easter, great opportunity. So uh, think, about, think about that. All right. I think that's it. All right. So we're to our series now, to the sermon. And so we are in a series called The Fight. It's a five-week series on Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, which is very famous passage where Jesus is tempted by the devil in the wilderness after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting. And we're in week three of the series, and basically the premise of the series is that following Jesus is this incredible gift of grace, this incredible life that extends all the way into eternity. At the same time, it is an epic battle. The Bible describes it that way. We experience it that way. It's a monumental struggle. It's a war on a personal and cosmic scale. Uh, according to the scripture, according to Jesus, essentially, it's, it's a fight. So today we're going to look at the role of scripture in that fight while keeping in mind that the devil in this passage, uses scripture. 
when he tempts Jesus. All right, so turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, those of you who are here, just take out one of the Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. It's on page 967 of those Bibles. And while you're turning, I just want to remind you that understanding the Bible, understanding your place in God's story doesn't have to be a mystery, and that's why we dig into the Bible every week and we listen for God the Holy Spirit to speak to us through His Word and and he will, and we reflect on what's our part in God's story. So please join me in the prayer that's gonna be on the screen that is a prayer asking the Holy Spirit to illuminate his word to us. So join me. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Holy Spirit, make us hungry for this heavenly food that it may nourish us today in the way of Jesus, the bread of heaven. All right, we're gonna have a couple of five ochres uh, read on screen our passage, you can follow along, and then we're gonna finish the passage because when I gave the assignment, I was one verse short. <laughs> All right, so let's, let's, let's watch. Matthew 4, one through five. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. All right, so here we go. We continue in verse 6. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written. And he quotes a psalm. He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put your Lord, the Lord God to the test. All right. So it can come is kind of a shock the first time you realize or somebody points out to you that in the temptation of Jesus, the devil is quoting scripture. And uh, if the first time you really realize that it didn't leave you in shock, uh, I'd, be, I'd be surprised. Um, of course, we're, we're all aware that devilish people use scripture all the time. I mean, they use it to justify devilish things, uh, injustice or unjust wars or heretical movements. We've always known that, but we have to remember that it's not just devilish people. It's the devil himself who's willing to use scripture. And it should at least make it really clear in our mind that, that in times of temptation where, or in times of spiritual warfare, just quoting scripture has no power, okay? It doesn't, it doesn't have power in that situation. Maybe, maybe quoting it might bring some calmness to you, but it's not going to have like, like power against the devil. The devil's not afraid. Demons are not afraid of scripture. It's not like, you know, pouring water on a vampire or something like that, okay? It's not like, whoa, you know, you use scripture. It's not gonna do that. If you look at scripture, this passage would suggest that the devil and his demons know scripture and more scripture than any of us here know scripture. 
So wielding scripture is more than quoting it. It's not a, a magical incantation. If we're going to take up the scripture in the fight, if we're going to wield it, brandish it in a fight, it's more than quoting it. And if that's the case, then how exactly do we wield scripture in the fight? If we're going to follow Jesus and Jesus' example in this passage. So I want to show you three ways that, we're going to do, that we do that. And the first is very, very simple, very fundamental, very logical. To wield scripture in the fight, you have to learn scripture. Uh, while it's true that simply quoting scripture doesn't frighten the enemy in the fight, scripture does play a very important role, but you can't wield scripture as it's meant to be wielded if you don't know it. You can't wield what you haven't grasped. It's simple logic. If you don't know what the Bible says, you can't wield the Bible in any given situation. So it begins with learning what the Bible teaches. But that's easier said than done for a lot of reasons. And one of them is that sometimes our time in the Bible can actually keep the Bible out of us. Sometimes our time, we can be spending time in the Bible, but it's actually keeping the Bible out of us. I'm going to explain what I mean by that, and then I want to summarize it with a couple of statements. All right, so hold on with me for just a moment. So there's a college professor by the name of Drew Johnson, and he's an author as well, and he runs an organization that has to do with Bible literacy and Bible reading and all that sort of thing. And he's noticed something lately in the school where he teaches in New York that a lot of the incoming students uh, have this weird contrast. They're reporting high levels of daily uh, quiet time, daily time of prayer, daily time of reading scripture. They're reporting high on that, but they're reporting lower and lower than previous classes on actually knowing the scripture, actually knowing what it, what it says. And so he suspects that it has something to do with the way that they're engaging in scripture. And he's discovered that while they're having this daily quiet time, which includes Bible engagement, the students don't seem to have very much experience in their life of actually studying the Bible. Uh, they're somewhat, I mean, he describes rather clueless about some of the major characters and events and the order of those events and that sort of thing. And they definitely, he said, don't have a bigger picture of the story of God, how it all fits together. And so he calls the kind of quiet time that they have, he calls it um, microdosing of scripture. And so here's how he, he describes it. He's this microdosing of scripture without a grasp of the whole of scripture can easily distort our interpretations of scripture. Time-tested traditions of long form, and I'll define this in a moment, Long-form scripture engagement expose us to and familiarize us with the contents of scripture. So what does he mean by long-form scripture engagement? Primarily, he means some of the stuff that until, you know, maybe a few years ago was the stuff that we did when we gathered. Uh, churches did when they gathered in Sunday school, uh, in adult Sunday school classes, and Bible studies, you know, that sort of thing. So long-form would be um, 
kind of reading through the Bible, taking on a program like that, participating in a study of a book of the Bible with a group of people, hearing whole passages being read in worship, in gatherings, worship gatherings, in student gatherings, that sort of thing, not just an individual verse or two. <clears throat> he says um, this long form has to do with the, getting a steady diet of sermons that are not just biblical, but they actually teach the Bible as well. It's that kind of thing that he's talking about. And he says, for the incoming freshmen, it seems that less and less of them have participated in that kind of Bible study in their lives. So the other thing that Professor Johnson notes is that when we really focus on this microdosing on scripture without understanding the whole, what we tend to do is begin to treat the Bible in an individualistic way. And so we just individualize things that are meant to speak not just to our lives individually, but our lives as a community. And so uh, this is what he says. He says, while personal character formation through personal scriptural engagement is essential, in isolation, if all you're doing is spending time in the Bible on your own, okay, in isolation, it aligns better with modernist tendencies of individualism he's talking about in that context than with the biblical focus on character formation through habits, rituals, and guidance from the community. And, um, uh, oh yeah, there's another one. I was thinking something missing there. This inward focus can also cast the formation of justice in communities and systems, a, a primary concern of the biblical authors as adhering to individualistic ethical principles. That's, that's a mouthful. But what he's saying basically here is that what happens is when we individualize something and we treat it as if it's an individualistic type thing, we miss all that the Bible says about justice and about systems, and we turn everything into kind of like an ethical rule book for individuals or some way that we're supposed to you know just you know toe the line even though the scripture speaks to our work lives and to companies and to governments and to the way we are to comport ourselves as citizens if we have an opportunity to be citizens that can be involved all that kind of a thing so he clarifies um, in this article he says he's not against microdosing it's not a bad thing to do that, okay? The kind of Bible engagement where you're taking a verse or two and you're meditating on it, praying on it, that kind of thing. But he says, previously, you know, if you go back a ways, um, he says, if you, if you, in fact, he says, if, like, if you look at the grandparents of these kids, they were microdosing on scripture, but not to the exclusion of also studying whole passages you know, over a lifetime and really getting to know. So that when they read those verses, they had an understanding of the larger story that those verses uh, were in. So I'm gonna summarize here really quickly the point of how is it that our time in the Bible can actually keep the Bible out of us so where we really grasp it. So first of all, we fail to study it so we don't actually know it and internalize it. So, um, uh, as a new person to Five Oaks said to me, says, some of us have been in condition to treat the Bible like a grab bag of motivational quotes or just feel-good one-liners. And I think we know it's so much more, so much more than that. Secondly, we individualize it 
So we fail to apply it beyond our private concerns and our private issues. That's the whole thing where we just kind of treat it as if it's some kind of individualistic thing. And what it winds up doing is this distorts the message of the Bible. All right, so to wield scripture in the fight, you have to learn scripture. You have to know it. And that means more than knowing a collection of verses that are like meaningful to you per personally, you have to know the flow of scripture. You have to know the story it tells. You have to know about the people and the events, the meaning of those events, the, the teachings. Again, standard stuff that churches, many churches still do, but uh, was standard in basically all Bible-believing churches. So this is a lifelong journey. This is not a, like you've got to master the Bible right now. In, in fact, it's, it's little by little over a lifetime. It doesn't have to be overwhelming. And if you're at the very beginning of this journey, we offer a course. It's a challenging course, but it's, it's a course that will take you from very little biblical knowledge or scattered biblical knowledge to understanding the whole story that the Bible tells. It's our story of God course. And I recommend it to you, if you're, especially if you're at the beginning of the journey. But we, we like, well, we ask all of people who are going to become members of Five Oaks to go through that class. So um, you're not going to master it overnight. You're never going to master it. But keep learning. Commit yourself to keep learning. Second, to wield scripture in the fight, you have to think scripture. So I like the way that John Mark Comer in, uh, in that book, uh, Live No Lies, that uh, has been a resource that we've been recommending during this time. Uh, he puts it this way. He says, the key is not to think about scripture, but to think scripture. And so this is my rendition of that idea. As you learn scripture, you begin to think script scripturally. As you learn scripture, you begin to think scripturally. In Romans 12, 2, do not conform. Apostle Paul writes, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. A big part of being able to build this kind of discernment into your life and renewal of your mind, the scripture is gonna play a really important role in that happening uh, in your life. And the reality is, I mean, I think, I think you know this, but the Bible does not speak directly to about 90% or, or I don't know what it is, but most of the decisions you need to make between two good things, sometimes between something, is this good, bad? Is this a bad thing? Should, should I you know, not participate in this? It just doesn't speak directly to it. You have to think scripturally. That's what this verse is getting at. And just think of this passage where you've got the devil quoting scripture, <laughs> and Jesus goes, yeah, but you're kind of, you're misapplying that passage. You have to, you have to know you have to know that. You have to be able to discern that. That's what this verse is talking about. It's that kind of discernment. So scripture plays a really important role uh, in that, in our lives. Now, in his book, Live No Lies, uh, John Mark Comer introduces us to a fourth century desert father named Evagrius Ponticus. And uh, this, the desert fathers were these monks that starting in the third century, they would go to Egypt or a particular desert in Egypt and... Um, 
and they would monk there. You know? <laughs> 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 it spent a lot of time in prayer and a lot of that sort of thing. So <clears throat> he spent a lot of time thinking about temptation and writing about it. He wrote a lot of things. He was a brilliant man. And, um, and one of the things that he wrote about were the various kinds of temptations. And uh, so he's one of the first ones that started using language like the seven deadly sins. And it wasn't until hundreds of years later that someone took his writings and developed what, what is now known as the seven deadly sins. And so one of his books built on the idea of wielding scripture in the fight, trying to follow Jesus' example, and so that when, <clears throat> when a thought comes into our mind or a temptation comes into our mind or a feeling or a sensation comes into our minds that uh, is, is contrary to God, how do we use scripture to do battle with that, okay? So it can come, you know, most of us, we haven't gone into the theology. Most of us are not gonna get directly attacked by the devil, and it doesn't even have to be one of his demons. We also have this thing that the Bible calls our flesh, this part of us that's unredeemed. There's also the world that's been influenced, and we'll talk probably about that in the next couple of sermons on this. But, but um, come from all kinds of sources that we have these, these temptations. And so um, how he was asking, can we apply this to the various kinds of temptations that we experience? So he wrote this thing called Talking Back, a monastic handbook for combating demons. All right? And, um, and here's an example of one of the sections from the book. So remember, desert fathers take vows of poverty. They fast a lot. Their life is really, really hard, all right? So they have some specific temptations. And so he starts with one of the seven deadly sins, the sin of gluttony, and which can mean just a, a desire, an excess of stuff, um, not just food. But he writes, uh, he kind of just works through the Bible on each one of these and numbers each one. By the time he gets to 11, he's in the Psalms. So he starts in Genesis. And he says, against the thought that embitters me in life, in, in the life of harsh poverty, the one he has taken a vow to live, okay? He speaks back, talks back. The Lord shepherds me, and I will lack nothing. Um, later, against the thought that is attentive to food and clothing, but rejects attention to the truth, talking back, I will declare my iniquity, my sin, and I will attend to my sin. I'm not going to like ignore what God has called me to. I'm going to attend to it so he can confess, so he can repent, that kind of a thing. So that's, that's the idea, and he just does this. You can buy it on Amazon, Talking Back, it's called. And uh, you can see how he does that and, uh, and, and the way that he does that. So. John Mark Comer, in his book, he talks about the fact that he has put together one of these handbooks for himself. He says, not going to see the light of day. You know, it's for himself and for his uh, particular struggles. And he says, you can do the same thing. And he encourages people to do that. And he offers a template for writing your own handbook um, to fight demons and temptations that spring from all these different sources, all right? And so uh, I'll give you uh, his template and some samples of what he means by this. And I wish I could have had made, made room in, my, um, in the outline, but I didn't. So 
These are the three main questions. There is a place in the outline that you can find these questions. I'll show you in a moment. So what's a thought, feeling, or, or sensation? So this would be, what is the temptation? What is the thing, this intrusive thought that is, goes counter to God? And a sample would be, I'm worried about losing my job and not being able to make my car payment. Now, it's not minimizing this kind of concern. What it's saying is, I'm like being eaten up inside. I'm not trusting God with this. I'm really holding on to this. All right, it's that kind of a thing. What lies beneath? This is the second question. What lies beneath the thought, feeling, and or sensation that it re reveals your attachment to something other than God? Okay, so that is something has become an idol in your life. And his sample is, my safety and security are in my job and my money and in owning newer, nicer things that I believe will make me happy. All right, so this, this would be individualized for you, how you would answer that and what that, this thought would be. And then the way to talk back with Scripture is keep your, this Scripture in Hebrews, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. All right, so that's, that's a, a way of talking back, a, a sample of that. Now, in your sermon application guide, the fourth question, there's only four questions this week because the fourth question should take you a while to do, and you can actually riff on this. You can probably answer this in many, many different ways, and you might want to even do that. Um, but what I've done is I've started basically with the truth, with a whole passage in here, all right? So... And it's a long passage, not just one verse. So that's why you can, there's probably four or five or six key verses in there that deal with different things, all right, uh, or related but different things, different aspects of what Jesus is talking about in this passage. So I start there and then, then ask the question, what would be a thought, feeling, or sensation that you've experienced that goes counter to one of the ideas in there, all right? And so when Jesus says, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, but tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble. Oh, I spent a lot of time worrying about tomorrow. Okay, so that might be what that is. Or lately I've been worried about X, Y, Z. Make it even more personal. And then the last question I have in here is, what's beneath this, the lie? What's, what's the lie beneath the thought, feeling, or sensation that reveals an attachment to something other than God. So you can spend some time doing that. And it's, it almost becomes a way of studying a passage of scripture and taking lots of applications uh, from it. So be interested in, in hearing some feedback on, on how that went for you in the small group. Now, if you're gonna put together your own manual and you're gonna start more in the way that he does it here, uh, the reality is you can go to Google and you can ask it to give you verses on anything and it will do it. You can go to chat GPT, it'll even do it better. It'll give you, you can say, and write a sermon on it, and it'll write a sermon on it. It's, it's amazing. Um, except for what I'm saying right now, everything I'm telling you is a chat GPT sermon, okay? So, uh, so you can do that, but that would be kind of falling into the, possibly, possibly into the microdosing. Just be careful that you're not just taking a verse from here and there, but you're reading the context of that and understanding kind of where, where that verses coming from and what its emphases are and, and all that sort of thing, kind of getting the, the bigger picture 
uh, of that. Very, very important. Remember, when Jesus is being tempted by the devil, and the devil even quotes scripture to him, Jesus keeps pulling passages out. We talked about this two weeks ago. Keeps pushing, pulling passages out from one section of scripture, Deuteronomy 6 through 8. None of those verses, does, he didn't see any of those verses that he calls out in isolation as if, oh, this is the perfect word for, you know, for, for this. No, he, it, he's choosing from this, this little narrow band of the Old Testament because it's in the time when Moses is reviewing with Israel their time in the wilderness being tempted or tested, right? So it's a parallel type of situation. And he's going through the test now. Remember that word tempt can also mean test. And so he's going through the test and he's drawing not just verses, not out there with Google, give me a verse, <laughs> quick, uh, to counter this thought. No, he's drawing from an entire story, the, the most important story, at least by in terms of, of, of focus of the Jewish people of his day. He's drawing from that story to talk back to the devil and to remember who he is and to remember how God would have him live. So it has that bigger, that bigger picture. It's not an easy thing to do, um, but if you want to take it on, uh, it'd be a great, great challenge. So to wield scripture in the fight, you have to learn scripture. You have to know it. To know it, you have to study it. It's a lifelong journey of learning. Second, to wield scripture in the fight, you have to think scripture. As you learn scripture, you begin to think scripturally when temptation comes. And third, you have to see through scripture. You have to see through scripture. Let me explain what I mean. If you... Um, a few years ago, I read a, uh, an author that I was, uh, this book I was reading by an author, and he told about an experience where he, as a Protestant pastor, with several other Protestant pastors, got a tour of a Greek, Greek Orthodox church in their community. And so they had asked this Greek Orthodox priest to give them a tour of his church. And, and so if you've never been to an Orthodox church, a Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, any of those churches, um, if you go there, what you would see is a lot of paintings, icons of all different kinds of, call them icons of all different kinds of sizes. And these paintings will have, uh, will depict scenes from the Bible, sometimes scenes from church history, some of the church fathers, you know, in various kinds of situations. They're not only on these icons, which are all over the place, they're on the walls. The stories are, these picture stories are in the mosaics. If there's mosaic floors, you know, that kind of thing, it's everywhere you go. And so the author said, one of the people in their group was marveling at it and said to the priest, he said, wow, um, it must be incredible to worship while looking at all this beauty. And, uh, and the priest said, oh, no, no, no. We don't look at the painting. We see through the painting. And so what he's saying is, this is not about like worshiping God in the midst of beauty. This is about the story that it's telling, helping us to see God, to see God, the God that, that we worship, the God that we love, to contemplate him, to contemplate his beauty, his actions. It's, it's about God, 
It's not about the painting. Now, there's nothing wrong with enjoying the beauty of the painting. It's just that's not its purpose in the worship service. So um, we need to see through the scripture to the God of the scripture and relate to him. In other words, you could do the other, you, know, you can start thinking scripturally, you can be learning. But if you're not seeing God and relating with God, all that is for nothing. Uh, I like a story that I told some years ago. Um, a counselor, author, former pastor uh, named Terry uh, Wardell, or, or Wardell, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but he grew up in the coal mining fields of Western Pennsylvania. And when he was growing up, he had some pretty traumatic experience. I was listening to an interview and he talked about this book he had written and some of the traumatic experiences that he had gone through. And, and he talked about how they left him just filled with a lot of fear and anxiety in his life. Uh, I'll give you a sample of one of the experiences he talks about. Uh, it involved his grandfather, who was a petty criminal and just basically an all-around bad guy. Uh, and so this one day, when he was a little kid, his grandfather came into the house and he said, Terry, let's go for a ride. And everybody's like, Grandpa wants to spend time with Terry. It, that's amazing. Maybe he's turned, you know, maybe he's changed or something. It's not what Grandpa does. And so while everyone was shocked, he went with his grandpa and he said the first thing, they got in the car and they went to the shed and he got his, his gun, he got his, his shotgun and got into the car and then they drove for a long time, they drove into the woods as the sun is going down, they're driving into the woods, deeper and deeper into the woods and they come to a shack. And by the time they get to the shack, it's pitch dark outside. And grandpa turns to Terry and says, Terry, get on the floor and do not leave and be completely quiet. And he leaves the car. Well, he's left in there for a long period of time. And the whole time he's in there, as you can imagine, he is, he's, he's thinking, he said, I'm thinking, what's out there? <laughs> the grandpa needs his gun. So it wasn't until years later, you know, this very traumatic experience for a kid, just completely frightened out of his wits for a long period of time, in the dark, in the woods, waiting for hopefully his grandfather to come back alive and something else not to get him. And so um, he said it was years later that he found out that what had happened was that his grandfather had gone out there to see one of his mistresses. He took the gun because the mistress's husband was doing the night shift in the mines just in case he came home. And he took Terry to trick his wife, grandma. That was the story behind what had happened. So Wardle talks uh, uh, about that, you know, these kinds of experiences left him with all this fear and anxiety, but they also was something that he, that fear and anxiety was something that he really leveraged to be really successful at everything he did. So he planted more than one church and every church that he would plant would become a large church and then he'd go plant another one. He became a seminary president at the age of 34. But all this time he's being eaten up inside by fear and anxiety. And he eventually got some help. He went and got some counseling and then he began to share been too afraid to do this before, but he started sharing with people, fellow Christians, that, you know, his experience with anxiety and fear. 
And he said he would often get uh, this question from people. Um, people would say, Terry, don't you remember that perfect love casts out fear? And he said he came to hate that verse. It was like, you know, for him it felt very dismissive. It's like, don't you know? Perfect love casts out fear, as if those people that are saying that don't experience any fear. Now, here's what he said is his problem with people quoting that verse to him in that way. He, he says, that scripture wasn't saying the scripture, perfect love casts out fear, will cast out fear. The scripture, perfect love casts out fear, will not cast out fear. Here's what he means. And when I heard him kind of explain it, I'm like, okay, I'm never going to forget this and I never have. So he explained, he said, that scripture doesn't say quoting this verse casts out fear. That scripture doesn't say knowing that perfect love casts out fear casts out fear. The scripture doesn't even say believing like trusting, believing that perfect love casts out fear, casts out fear. This is what he, he says. So perfect love casts out fear. Knowing that verse, quoting it, this is my adaptation of what he said. Quoting it, believing it is necessary, but without a personal encounter with the God of perfect love and an experience of that perfect love in him, all we have, this is my wording, is a magical incantation when we wield that verse. We have to see through Scripture to the God of the Scripture. He reveals in the Scripture, he reveals himself, he reveals his ways, he reveals his purposes, his mission, his story, his glory, our story as it fits into his story. That all comes through the Scripture so that we can relate to him, not for the sake of just knowing more, not for the sake of just having more scripture, which we need to have. We can't wield what we have not grasped, right? So not for the sake of that, but for the sake of loving him, experiencing a relationship with him, relating to him every moment of the day at work, at school, at home, at play, everywhere that we go. When Jesus wielded scripture, it recalled for him God's character. It recalled for him God's ways. That's why he could say, uh-uh, I'm not going to test. That's not God's way for me to throw myself off and have the angels. You know, you're misusing that scripture. Because um, he knew God's ways. He knew God's story. And, and he was not only recalling that but he's also talking back to the devil. He is rebuking the devil who is, is bringing thoughts and ideas that are foreign to who he is and who God is. To do what Jesus did then means you have to learn scripture. You have to learn, you have to think scripture and you have to see through scripture. Now, my hope <laughs> is that I'm just, right, this is one of those talking to the choir situations. Because at Five Oaks, that's what we do. And I certainly hope that in our engagement, in our kids' engagement, in our students' engagement, that that's exactly what we're doing. 
and, and it's exactly what we're going to continue to do. Uh, so this is a, this is a yes you know, type sermon, not a I got to go out and do something type sermon. But maybe in your life, you don't show up that often. You're not involved in a small group. Your kids are kind of not really in and your students are not really in and doing stuff or whatever it might be. Um, there are several suggestions. Um, the first one, again, being participate in the life of a church that is being formed by Scripture, that our lives are being formed by Scripture. Participate. Be, be engaged. Uh, but in the outline, I've listed a number of other ways. Some of them you can, almost all of these you can do with other people and avoid that kind of individualizing everything. Um, but uh, I'll leave that. I'll leave that for you to look at in your own time. There's some ways of doing long-form um, Bible study where you learn to think like Scripture and really get to know God at a much deeper, deeper level. All right, we're going to begin our response time now. And um, as we do every week, we begin that uh, with the bread and the cup of communion. So I encourage you to take out your packet. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. The whole, the whole scripture story up to that point led to this point. And, uh, and then to everything that this ushers in. Scripture tells us that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for sending Jesus. We thank you for his life, his death, his teaching. We thank you for the whole story of the Bible. Pray, Father, that we, would, that we would get to know your story even better, that we would see it as a window into you, that we would struggle uh, with the places where it becomes difficult to understand or to comprehend or to even hold it all together, that we would do it together, that we would do it with all of your people who have gone before us through the centuries, learning from them as well. And I pray, Father, that, um, that we would come to know you and experience your love, the love that casts out fear, that we would experience that in our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.